This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, June 30th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Today's Supreme Court decision in West Virginia v. Environmental Protection Agency says the agency can't give itself major power through bold interpretations of vague old laws. Chief Justice Roberts detailed a new major questions framework that mirrors those laid out in the Cato Institute's brief in the case. Will Yateman, the author of that brief, explains what the case means. Going back in time a little bit, the Supreme Court at one point said that carbon dioxide uh, and other uh, chemicals in the air could be treated as pollutants by the EPA and would be regulable under the Clean Air Act. What did that set the stage for here? Well, that established that EPA had the authority under the Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gases to fight climate change. Um, at issue in West Virginia v. EPA was a distinct question, how it exercises that authority. The chief justice wrote the opinion. Uh, who was he joined by? He was joined by, I guess, what are known as the conservative justices or those that were appointed by um, Republican presidents. Um, I think in the minority or in the dissent was Kagan, Breyer, and Sotomayor. So um, the, the six that were not those three. So this is basically how you might expect a case like this to line up. Well, indeed. Um, and, you know, I would say through and through um, the fact that the Chief Justice Roberts uh, took the lead on the opinion here and, and used it to flesh out, to put meat in the bone of, of this major questions doctrine, um, that's very much in line w- with his stewardship of the court when it comes to these administrative law matters. Um, he has indeed written... Um, a, a handful of, of supremely consequential administrative law decisions. I mean, this seems to be something that he has a keen eye on. And, in, and indeed, he announced as much in a, an opinion more than a decade o- o old, City of Arlington v. FCC. It's a very famous dissent in which Chief Justice Roberts uh, basically set forth his concerns with the way that administrative policymaking is conducted these days. Let's understand this major questions doctrine, because this uh, has a lot of implications for uh, every federal administrative agency. How did the court resolve this uh, particular case uh, for the EPA and its ability to regulate uh, in the expansive way that it had chosen to do under the Clean Power Plan and uh, what what that means for any other regulatory agency when considering uh, how it might attempt to expand its own authority? Well, definitely. So uh, let me set the table here. Um, Over the last two decades, the the court has hinted at this so-called major questions doctrine. Um, And so what does that mean? It, It basically means that the court became suspicious of agencies justifying major regulations Um, on the basis of big and bold interpretations of vague old laws. Um, Really, the the major questions doctrine is coterminous with what scholars referred to as the advent of presidential administration. And what this means is is basically since Clinton, um, modern presidents have been the primary, the foremost uh, domestic policymaker within the federal government. I mean, Congress has been a decided second here. Um, And uh, we've seen sort of ever bigger, ever bolder 
um, interpretations, resulting in major policies emanating, you know, again, out of the White House, out of the executive branch. And the way this typically works is that a president settles upon a major policy initiative that he would like to um, achieve, and then he issues an executive order that requires the agency to go about effectuating that policy, typically on the basis of a long extant statute. So how did that work here in West Virginia v. EPA? Um, again, some more backstory. In 2010, the 111th Congress tried but failed to pass a nationwide cap and trade, um, the, one of these climate policies. It, it, this, this bill, the American Clean Energy and Security Act, it passed the House of Representatives, but it ultimately died in the vine in the Senate. So then President Obama gets reelected. And one of the first things he does is he has a speech at Georgetown Law where he institutes this presidential administration in practice. I mean, he orders the Environmental Protection Agency to um, undertake a major climate regulation. So a couple years later, um, the EPA comes out with this clean power plan. And what it does is at the end of the day, um, it, it, it would have imposed a, a nationwide cap and trade. So the same policy that, that Congress had considered, deliberated upon for, for a year and a half, but ultimately declined to pass, the EPA under the Obama administration was purporting the authority to impose. So setting aside, I guess, legal wrangling over that rule, fast forward to the Trump administration. What do they do? Um, they issue a measure that, at the one hand, repeals the Clean Power Plan, uh, what Obama did. And basically, along with that repeal, says... Um, we find that the agency simply does not have the authority to, to effectuate a nationwide cap and trade. Um, at the same time, the, the Trump administration issued a replacement rule. So all those measures, they were all litigated. In essence, we saw today the culmination of litigation over that Trump era measure um, and the direct holding of the Supreme Court was that Essentially, the Trump administration had it right. Um, the Clean Air Act unambiguously forecloses the agency from issuing a nationwide cap and trade on the basis of this. What the agency concedes is an ancillary provision that Congress wrote 50 years ago, well before any lawmakers were expressing any concern over global warming. Um, so uh, that's the, the direct implication of today's decision and the direct background. How did the court get there? Um, Chief Justice John Roberts did so by fleshing out, by, by announcing, if you will, this major questions doctrine, which, again, the court had hinted at over the prior two decades, but it never fully fleshed out. It never really put meat on the bones. So there was all this unresolved um, uncertainty, if you will, as to how lower courts should apply this doctrine. So in finding that the EPA does not have the authority on the basis of a 50-year-old statute, an ancillary provision in a 50-year-old statute to effectuate a nationwide cap and trade, Chief Justice Roberts got there through this major questions doctrine and in so doing, developed it, um, you know, basically established it, rooted it, um, and put some teeth on it and some criteria on it that will guide lower courts in the future when it comes to deciding as to whether or not an agency is going too far. So for other agencies, uh, this, this ruling that fleshes out this idea of the, the major questions doctrine, you would expect that other agencies have also similar rules on the books that are essentially related to powers that the agencies have 
assumed or created uh, without a whole lot of statutory support. So, so how will courts in the future use this major questions doctrine to begin to evaluate those rules? Well, I guess this gets to how CJR developed the doctrine. And uh, I'll note here that that in our brief, uh, Cato, along with the Mountain States Legal Foundation, we had issued an amicus brief at both the cert and the merit stages. But we had uh, we had asked the court, we had we had told the court that it's it's essential for you to develop this major questions doctrine, and we actually set forth criteria by which the court could use to identify these major questions, and that, and that's the the sixty four thousand dollar question when it comes to this doctrine. Um, its critics will will all point. They all say, "Well, how do you identify a major question? I mean, what could be more amorphous than that?" And what our brief did was set forth some some the criteria, some uh, factors that the agency, or the, I'm sorry, that a court could use to guide this determination for identifying a major question. Um, I'm pleased to say that uh, I don't whether or not we influenced Chief Justice Robert is an open question. He didn't cite us. However, the factors that he set forth to limit this doctrine that allow courts to identify these major questions closely track what we pitched. Um, and it's basically, is what the agency doing, is it unprecedented? Is it something they've never tried before? Does it fall outside the agency's expertise? So, for example, when the Obama administration's EPA was working on this nationwide cap and trade they went to Congress and they said, we need more money for engineers and energy lawyers because we're, we're operating in this, this sector, this, uh, this electricity grid that we haven't dealt with before. The court took that as evidence of, of this uh, clean power plan being outside of its normal course of expertise. So is it unprecedented? Is it outside the agency's expertise? Also, is it something that Congress tried but failed to do? Um, uh, you know, again, I kind of set forth the back forth before that certainly applies to um, the backstory before that, that applies here. Um, so the long and short of it is, what is the fallout from this ruling? Um, where? Well, it, it's going to be where agencies have based major policies. And, you know, how do we identify major policies? Well, when they're doing something unprecedented, when it falls outside their expertise, um, when they're dealing with something that Congress yet failed to do, when their statutory basis, rather than a clear statement from Congress or, or anything of that sort, it, it's it's a, a vague ancillary, quote unquote, provision. Again, the EPA conceded that the basis for this major rule, this cap and trade, was an ancillary provision of the Clean Air Act. That doesn't make any sense. Why on earth would the most consequential regulation ever promulgated pursuant to the Clean Air Act come from an ancillary provision? So... Uh, when you take all these factors together, it's not as though we're talking about a wrecking ball to the administrative state. Um, we're talking to a handful of rules per presidential term. Um, and to be sure, it's not just the EPA. I mean, you know, there are other agencies that are certainly pushing the envelope when it comes to the, the inter their interpretive power. I mean, that's what I was getting at before when I was talking about how the rise of this major questions doctrine uh, coincided the rise of presidential administration, whereby we've got these presidents who are directing agencies to achieve major policies. And the only way that agencies have to do that, because Congress hasn't passed a new law, is to dust off the statute book, 
find an old law, a vague ancillary provision, and then imbue it with all sorts of authority through an expansive interpretation. Um, so in the handful of instances of agency wide, again, this isn't just the EPA, this is, you know, on the average presidential term, and this is an off the cuff guess, I'd have guessed, I'd, I'd uh, guesstimate that, you know, five or six of these things come down the pike. Um, so in the future, I don't think we're going to see these sorts of interpretive adventurism. I mean, you know, I, I think it's going to deter it of agencies from doing so, because after all these these rulemakings, these measures, they're very resource intensive. Um, and, and I should add here, I think this is a salutary result. Um, that is, uh, I think this fleshing out of the major questions doctrine and giving lower courts something to work with is going to do wonders for the stability of the law. And that's because the problem with this presidential administration stuff is that whatever one president can do, the next president can undo. And that's exactly what happens. And the more important, the more major the policy, the more likely it is to become a political football that gets kicked back and forth from Republican to Democrat, from Democrat to Republican. Um, and you know, these major industries, in, in this instance, the electricity grid, I mean, that's an important one. Um, they get caught in this spin cycle of uncertainty. So, you know, there, there will be amongst progressives, a lot of naysayers, a lot of uh, critics of this rule, and, and they will um, they're going to exaggerate, you know, uh, they're going to say, oh my gosh, this is absolutely going to gut the administrative state. And the answer is no, no, it's not. 99, 99% of the administrative state is going to continue as normal. It's just in these handful of instances, um, that do raise, you know, come on. I think we can all agree that when an agency does something unprecedented that Congress had tried and failed to do that is outside their expertise and it's based on an ancillary provision, that geez, Louise, I mean, that, that isn't necessarily a recipe for a legitimate major policy. Um, so I think it's going to bring stability to the law. And I think it's going to put the ball in Congress's court when it comes to domestic policymaking. I was about to ask if I'm a member of Congress uh, in the House from a purple district. You know, this kind of puts the screws to me on uh, doing uh, actual policymaking in Congress in a way that administrative agencies may feel, do feel as of today, less free to do going forward. And I'd respond, boo-hoo. I mean, who said being a lawmaker and representing you know, hundreds of thousands of people, um, possibly millions if you're a senator, who said it's supposed to be easy? And, and goodness gravy, I would say that the, uh, at least when it comes to domestic policymaking, um, the ills of our system are a function of Congress's inactivity. And, and I'm not saying that's a, 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 I'm not saying they're so polarized they can't agree on anything. What I am saying is that they're so polarized that they, they find it more efficient for the president to take the lead when it comes to domestic policymaking. I mean, I'll say this, um, without making any comment whatsoever on the underlying uh, jurisprudence, the progressive response to Dobbs um, was for uh, 30 senators to call on the president to declare a national emergency um, and thereby effectuate uh, uh, policies to their liking in the wake of that decision. You know, that's really, really weird that 30 senators, that's the upper chamber, all right, that's the important one, um, that their initial response instead of, hey, we have majorities in, in both chambers and the president is from our party, instead of getting to work on a bill, that they send a letter out calling for the president to declare a bogus national emergency. Um, you know, that's troubling. 
And, you know, to be sure, I'm an equal opportunity offender here. Trump did the same stuff at the border, um, you know, 2019. That was a, a, a bogus emergency there, too. Um, but but and that, too, was condoned by by Republican lawmakers. Um, so if we can get a shift away from that, where Congress rediscovers its sense of institutional pride, then I think that would augur quite well um, for not just our politics, but our constitutional order. Will Yateman is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 